Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the calling of being a dad. Lord, uh, your word says that children are a gift from the Lord. And so, Father, here's what we ask. We pray uh, for those of us who are dads, those of us who one day will be dads, and those of us who have already done the daddying thing. Lord, we pray that you would give us great wisdom as we go forward and live out this calling. Lord, that you would help us to represent you to our children, to our families. Lord, help us to be a pillar of spiritual strength, a a, a pillar of spiritual character, Lord, that our kids can look on and say, I want what dad has because it's real. But Lord, we realize that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we look to you and we say, God, help us to be the dads that you've called us to be. Thank you, God, for the dads who are here today. Help us, again, be everything that, 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 uh, that we can be. Father, we pray for the teaching right now. I pray that you open our hearts, our minds, our ears. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and, and a heart that's able to receive what it is that you'd want to share with us today. Give me the right words in just the right way uh, to communicate this message. So be with us now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. Okay, well, I want you to do something today. I want you to turn to two places in your Bible. We're going we're gonna to turn to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to start in Revelation chapter 1. But I want you also to turn to Matthew 24. We'll get to Matthew 24 in a few minutes. But we're going to start in Revelation chapter 1. So we have been working our way if, uh, to, through the Gospel of Matthew. So if you're new to Calvary, one of the things that we will do is we'll take a book of the Bible and then we will begin teaching through starting in the beginning and then we teach all the way through. We have found ourselves coming to Matthew chapter 24 and uh, Matthew 24, Jesus gives this teaching uh, wholly and completely about this time period that you and I would refer to as the end times. And so it was uh, two weeks ago that we began chapter four, and Jesus gave an overview, then it became a little bit more specific, and then we wrapped up last week referencing this event that's commonly referred to as the rapture of the church, and we're going to talk about that today. So we're going to give kind of like the big overview, then we're going to bring it down to the specific and uh, see how, see how uh, we wind up. So hopefully... You've turned to the book of Revelation, and you know you can't really talk about end time stuff unless you at least open the book of Revelation at, at some point. And I think it's important to look to the book of Revelation because there are those who are going around in this community and they are saying that the book of Revelation is hard to understand. But au contraire say we, for you see, the word revelation itself means that something has been revealed. Absolutely. If God wanted to conceal something, he would have called this the concealation, not the revelation. So what is it that God is revealing in this book? Revelation chapter 4 verse 1, underline it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. This, is, this book is about the revealing of Jesus. And God so wanted his people to read this book that he promised for those who would read this book that they would receive a very special blessing. And that blessing is found in Revelation chapter 1 verse 3. Let's look at it. Revelation 1 verse 3, it says, blessed is he who reads. This is the only book of the Bible that says, read me, I'm special. It's the only book of the Bible where God says, blessed are those who read. Blessed is he who reads, those who hear the words of this prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. 
it would be very strange for us to believe in a God who says, I will bless you if you read it. I want you to hear the words. I want you to heed the words. But here's the thing, you're never going to understand it. That'd be very odd for us to believe in a God like that. But God knew that there would be those who would be going around saying that the book of Revelation is hard to understand. So he placed in this book so that we could understand it, its own outline. And that outline is found in Revelation chapter 1 verse 19. Let's look at it. Revelation 1 19, Jesus is speaking to John the apostle and he says, Jesus speaking, he says, therefore write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall take place after these things. There are three divisions in the book of Revelation. The first one, he's told to write the things that he has seen. So the question is, what has John seen up to this point? Well, John has encountered Jesus in his resurrected, glorified state. Verse 13, just very quickly it says, in the middle of the lamp stands John speaking, I saw one like the Son of Man, and it goes on to describe him. Verse 14, his head and hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. So he has seen Jesus in his eternal glorified state. But then he says, write the things that are. Now the things that are will refer to a time period that you and I would call the church age. And that's found in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. Jesus dictates seven letters to seven churches. In their order, they lay out 2,000 years of church history. If you reverse the order of any of the churches, it doesn't make sense. But in their order, they lay out 2,000 years of church history. So much so that I'm going to ask you to turn uh, to uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Hold your finger there in 119. But Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus writes seven letters to seven churches. They lay out 2,000 years of church history. The last church is called the Church of Laodicea. And it's interesting that in every church, Jesus gives a title of himself. And the title is different to every church. But in every church, in the title, there is something that that church has to be reminded of. So in chapter 3, verse 14, the last church, Jesus says to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, and then underline the beginning of the creation of God says this. That's sort of an awkward translation. Some of your Bibles would say, the be- mine says the beginning of the creation of God. What it means is that he began the creation. He's not the first thing created, but Jesus is the creator and he created everything. It's very interesting to me that the last church, and it's the only church as you read through, that he feels that he needs to remind them that he is the creator. Could it be that that last church no longer understands that he is the creator? Do you know that you and I live in the only generation in church history where people come to church each week, claim to be followers of Jesus, but do not believe that he's the one who created? They believe in another process. So that last church, he reminds, I am the creator. Revelation chapter 1, 19, he goes back, we go back and it says, therefore write the things which you have seen. He's seen Jesus, the things which are church, uh, seven letters to seven churches. We call that the church age. And then he says, and the things which will take place after these things, after that church age. So that phrase, after these things, we're going to find that again in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Everybody change, oh, turn over to chapter 4, verse 1. 
Chapter 4, verse 1 begins with the phrase, after these things. You want to underline that. Does everybody see that? So you say, after what things? Well, after chapters 2 and 3, letters to seven churches, church history, church age, after that, John says, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Looking up. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. I love that it says, After these things, two times in case we miss it. It says at the beginning of the verse and the end of the verse. So here, John uh, sees a door standing open in heaven, a voice saying, Come up here. And, uh, and then we find in verse 2, he goes on, he says, Immediately I was in spirit, and behold, a throne standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And what we find is this is where that event that's commonly referred to as the rapture takes place. The church is immediately transported to heaven. Also, what's going to be interesting in this is that in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, the word church is mentioned over 20 times. But one word will not be mentioned from chapter 4, verse 1, to the end of the book, and that word is church. And the reason that it's never mentioned again is that the church is no longer there on the ground. The church has been removed to heaven. Now, in the last couple of lines of the book of Revelation, the word church is mentioned, not part of the story, but as an invitation to make sure that you receive Jesus. The church says, come, be part of what God is doing. Just for fun. The church goes up, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. We're around the throne, and the very first thing that the church begins to proclaim in heaven, chapter 4, verse 11, it says, we begin to proclaim, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, underline that. And because of your will, they existed and were created. It's very interesting that the first thing that the church does when we are taken up to heaven, we are around the throne, all of a sudden you get the sense that everybody's going, wow, you really were the creator, and we proclaim that. First things out of our mouth. So chapter 4, verse 1, the church goes up, but when the church goes up, what comes down? Wrath. And where is that found? Revelation chapter 6, verse 16. Everybody flip over to chapter 6, 16. And this is the the beginning, the opening volley of that time period that's commonly referred to as the tribulation. So here's what's going on. It actually begins in chapter 6, verse 1, but we're going to pick it up in verse 16. And it says, And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne. That would be God the Father. And from the, and you want to underline, wrath of the Lamb. Wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Very interesting, you have here, the church is removed, and in that time period, God's wrath is poured out on a world that has not just rejected him, but has persecuted his people, that has uh, done horrible things to those who wanted to follow Jesus. And so the church is removed, and then that comes down. You and I right now have the opportunity to meet Jesus as our Savior, as our friend, as as our Redeemer, however you'd want to term that. But there comes a point when that opportunity is removed in the sense that the church is removed and then God's wrath is poured out on the earth and that'll be a seven-year time period. 
Now the good news is that in that time in that time period many people will be coming to Jesus but sadly they'll have to endure that time period. That's a conversation for another day. So do you find that interesting so far? So there's a chronology, there's a, a, a stepping as it goes. So I want you to go back to Matthew 24, Matthew 24, and we pick it up there. So as, as uh, you're turning there, I've got three little points there on your outline just to give some clarity. The rapture is where Jesus comes for his church, and you want to write that down. And that's for all the believers on the earth. Jesus talked about this on the, uh, the Last Supper. Jesus said it like this. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, that's heaven, there are many dwelling places. Keep that in mind. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's not coming to be with us at this time He is coming to receive us to go be with him where he has been preparing dwelling places for us. This is something that you find taught throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. Isaiah would say it like this there in your outline. Isaiah says, this is 800 years before Jesus is born. Isaiah 26 is an end times prophecy. It says, come my people, enter into your rooms. Jesus might say dwelling places. And close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until the indignation runs its course. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his, from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. God's people hear the, the word come, come be part, uh, come into the, the rooms, to enter into the rooms. Jesus would say, I go to prepare a place for you. We enter through an open door, as John saw, and uh, once we go into that door, it's shut that we cannot come back, at least not for a while. And we are tucked away, we are hidden there until the indignation runs its course. Now that word indignation can also be translated as anger or rage, and I'm going to suggest to you that that indignation is going to last for about seven years. So the church goes up, and then uh, once the church goes up, then there is the seven-year time period that's commonly referred to as the tribulation. So go ahead and write this down. We have the seven-year tribulation. Jesus spoke about this when we were studying through the first part of Matthew 24, and Jesus said, for then, this is still in the future for us, shall be great tribulation, such as hath not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, nor shall ever be. We've seen some strange things in our world. We've seen some bad times. It's nothing compared to what's going to happen in the future. It will be in that time that that one that's commonly referred to as the Antichrist will appear. There you see uh, Revelation 6.16, we read that. They said, hide uh, they said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us. We read that. So I'm going to skip down to the next verse. It will be in that time period that there will be that one world government, that one world currency. And you'll find verses like this. No one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark. And uh, you'll hear a lot of people talk about the, what's commonly referred to as the, the mark of the beast. 
that happens during that time period of the tribulation. So if you're watching on YouTube or something and people say, this is the mark of the beast, no, that's, that's in the future. That's, that's in the, uh, that time period of the tribulation. But then after the tribulation, we have the next event there in your outline. After the seven-year tribulation, we have Jesus comes back with the church to the earth. And you want to write that down. That, that is called the second coming. It's called the second coming. And that's found in Revelation chapter 19, and you can read that later. But Paul would talk about that event, the second coming, and he would say it like this. So that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So Jesus has to come for us. We're tucked away at the end of the seven-year tribulation at what's called the second coming, he comes back and at that point he says he comes with us. So there's two events and many, many people confuse those two events. Which brings us back to Matthew 24. Have I put you to sleep yet? Okay. Well, let's see if I can here. So you have in, in Matthew 24, we began this two weeks ago and as our story begins, as we've said the last couple of weeks, Jesus is literally a couple of days away from the crucifixion. And he has said some things that are very perplexing to his disciples. He's told them things like the temple is going to be destroyed. Big, big deal if you're Jewish 2,000 years ago. And that happened in 70 AD. Israel would be decimated. And uh, as, as he tells his disciples these things, they're, they're very perplexed. So they come to him privately in verse 3, Matthew 24, And it says, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They ask him three questions. When will these things happen? And and, uh, he's going to tell them about the destruction of the temple. Uh, What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They ask three questions. They have rightfully paired his coming with the end of the age. The end of the age does not mean the end of everything, it just means the end of the age. And so Jesus is now going to take the rest of the chapter and he's going to answer their three questions. One thing that we've highlighted each week is that when they ask the question about the end of the age and his coming, he does not say, why do you care about that? Don't focus in on that. It all just kind of pans out. Don't worry about those things. No, he he becomes very emphatic. And in verse 4, notice how he responds. Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. The idea is that uh, I will answer your question, all, all three questions that he's going to answer in this chapter. But he begins by saying, see to it that no one misleads you. The idea is, I will tell you, but you're responsible to understand this. Make sure that you're not misled. Then he gives what we call the overview. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. We talked about this the last two weeks. You'll be hearing of wars, rumors of wars. See to it that you're not frightened. We talked about that. For those things must take place, but that's not yet the end. These things are going to happen, but they're not the sign of his coming, but they're just going to happen. Verse 7, what's going to happen? Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. In various places there will be famines 
and earthquakes and all these things, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And so when we talked about this over the last two weeks, we we referenced that uh, Jesus uses the illustration of birth pangs. When a woman becomes pregnant, as the baby begins to grow inside of her, there's this increase, increasing sense of discomfort. Hopefully I'm saying that right. And there are times when there will be contractions. There will be uh, times when there will be false starts, false starts to labor. And, but after a very long period of pregnancy, there comes a point where labor kicks in. And when labor kicks in, what takes place is all of a sudden the contractions become closer and closer together and more and more intense. And, and so Jesus says that's how it's going to be. So the last couple of weeks we referenced and we said we had a civil war, you know, wars and rumors of war. We had a civil war back in the 1800s in our country. That was bad. That was nothing compared to World War I, which was nothing compared to World War II. Just worse and worse. We talked about how in 2004, for the very first time in our lifetime, we saw a tsunami. And uh, we were, we were uh, you know, shocked by what we saw. But in 2011, we saw another as it hit Japan. And these things are increasing. We talked about earthquakes and, and volcanoes and, and all of these things. And we referenced last week the volcano that's in Hawaii right now that has been erupting going on two months. And as of this morning, they still, they still say there is no end in sight to this eruption. We are going to see these things continue and they're going to increase as we go. So the first week we went through that and then Jesus gave an overview of the last 2,000 years and still some time to come all the way through that time period called the tribulation. But then last week he answered, we looked at, where he answered the sign of his coming. In verse 32 he said, now learn the parable from the fig tree, from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And we talked about how in the Bible, when you see the symbol or the fig tree and it's used as a symbol, it's always a reference to Israel just like when we were in Revelation chapter 6 and it talked about the wrath of the Lamb. The Lamb in the Bible is always a reference to to Jesus. And so right now we have the opportunity to meet Him, but one day some are going to meet Him in wrath and you don't want that to be you. So when you see the, the fig tree, it's always a reference, whenever it's used as a symbol, a reference to Israel. And so it says, when you see that begin to bud and put forth its leaves, the fig tree is a tree that after a very long winter, uh, it looks dead, but then in the springtime, it comes back to life. Israel is the only nation on the planet in the history of the world that existed as a nation in 70 AD, ceases to exist as a nation, is completely dead, renamed after the ancient enemies of Israel, the Philistines, we call it Palestine, Philistine, same word, different language. And, and it, was, it was dead as far as the world could see, but in 1948 Israel becomes a nation again, comes back to life. Jesus says that generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. 
So we talked about that last week. Verse 37, interesting things in that generation, says, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. We talked about that last week. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. You know, it's, it's in that last generation where there's going to be some strange things happening, but it, life is just going on. They're, they're buying, they're selling, they're marrying, they're giving in marriage. Life is going on. So we made the reference, and I want you to write this down. It will be a time it will be business as usual in an unusual time. And last week we, we saw how unusual it will be. So then the very next verse, verse 40, is this event we're going to talk about today. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. And two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Matthew tells it this way. When Luke records this, he adds another detail. So I put Luke's rendition there on your outline. Luke says it like this. Jesus is speaking. I tell you that on that night there will be two in one bed. and uh, So go ahead and write night there in that little space, night. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place and that would be in the morning. In the Middle East the women would get up early in the morning they would grind the meal so that they could bake the bread for the day. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. And that will be day. They'll be working out in the day. So what we notice is that not everyone is taken. Uh, we're going to find that only believers are taken in, in this event. What hits me, and when I first saw this, one of the things that hit me on this is that Jesus taught this 2,000 years ago. It's only been in the past 600 years that the rest of the world has caught on to the fact that the world is round. See, up until that time, most people believed that the world was flat. But Jesus describes an event that will take place at the same time. It will be night, it will be day, and it will be morning. So there on your outline, the rapture of the church will happen instantly and be worldwide. Some will be in bed and some will be in the field. So Paul would later on speak of this. And when he speaks of this, he will describe it like this. Behold, I tell you a mystery, there in your outline. We will not all sleep, um, means to die. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Now, some people think that this is a verse that you put up in your church nursery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. It didn't work in the first two services either, but I just had to. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the idea faster than you can blink, the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. When it says that, that we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, it implies that there is a final generation, a final generation, And uh, some will have passed away, some will be alive at that time, and there will be an immediate change, an immediate change. 
So how will that change go? How does that all go down? Well, I put there on your outline, Paul goes into a little bit more depth there in his letter to the church, to the, uh, the Thess- Thessalonians. And um, Paul has gone to that church. He's established a church. He was only there for three weeks. And in the time that he was there, the bulk of his teaching dealt with this subject that you and I would call end times. So they send a letter to Paul because now they're concerned. They're concerned because, first of all, Paul has talked to them about the tribulation, and now they are experiencing some very difficult times. So they write and they say, are we in that time of the tribulation? And Paul has to write back and say, no, that's, that hasn't happened yet. Then they, they, as part of that letter, they're concerned because they were expecting that Jesus was coming back very, very soon in that first generation. And so now some people have passed away. So now they have, uh, as part of their letter, they've written to Paul and they're saying, so what about the people who have died? What happens to them? Did we miss this event called the rapture? And uh, so Paul writes back and he gives some clarification. So I put this passage there on your outline. First thing that he says, he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. It's interesting to me, Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed about this. Jesus would say, I don't want you to be misled about these things. And uh, Jesus would even say, and I'll even bless you if you check these things out. So he goes on in verse 14, and he says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, and I've underlined that, the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul says, I'm telling you this by the word of the Lord. And the reason that he says that is he realizes that what he's about to tell them is going to sound very strange. So before they can say, Paul, you're out of your mind, he says, I want you to know, I didn't think this up. This is straight from the Lord, straight from the Lord. And he says, if you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, then then you can believe this. So he goes on, verse 16 there. He says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, and I've underlined that, and remain, will be caught up. And I've underlined that word, caught up. We'll come back to those two words there. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. So you you have in this passage you have the Lord coming, we hear a voice, uh, a shout, and I'm going to suggest to you what we hear is what John heard in Revelation chapter 4-1, which is come up here, because that's what we do. We meet the Lord in the clouds, and thus we will always be with the Lord, is how, is how it's described. Then he says, those of us who are alive and remain, uh, those of us who are alive and remain, once again, that implies a final generation. Some have fallen asleep, but there will be that final generation. We are caught up and we meet the Lord in the air. Verse 17, he says, 
then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Now this event, again, is commonly referred to as the rapture of the church. How many of you, how many of you have ever heard somebody say that the word rapture isn't even in the Bible? Anybody ever heard that? Okay. Well, part of that is true. Part of that is true. There on your outline, um, you see there's the Latin repair and the Greek word harpazo. When the Bible was, the New Testament was written, this was originally written in Greek and the word was harpazo, harpazo. But in the 300s AD, there was a man named Jerome. He's considered one of the church fathers, very academic. It was it was felt that they needed to put the Bible, the scriptures, into a dead language. Now, a dead language means it's a language that doesn't change. Most languages change over time. A hundred years ago, if you were reading Matthew chapter 18, it would say, suffer the little children to come unto me. Sounds a little odd, doesn't it? Well, a hundred years ago, the word suffer just meant to allow. Uh, you've heard of the women's suffrage movement, you know, so it was to allow them. But the wording has, the meaning has changed. So they said, we need to put this in a language that's dead in the sense that it will never change. So they put it in Latin. Latin became the only Bible for over a thousand years. That word caught up, or hapazo from the Greek, is in the Latin there in your Bible, is rapere. Uh, which is the Latin way of saying our English word rapture. Rapture means to just be caught up. It just means to be taken, caught up. So that's where that word comes from. So uh, we say rapture because of what it was said in uh, the, the, the Latin Bible. So Paul says, I want you to know that this is from the Lord. He receives us as we meet him in the air and thus we will always be with him. Those of us who receive him, or he receives us near, are those who are alive and remain, that last generation. So here's the big finish, verse 18. He ends that by saying, therefore comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. I I love that he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. Jesus says, whatever you do, don't be misled. Jesus says, there's a blessing if you check this out. I think part of the blessing is just when you look at the events going on in the world, you're able to understand this is what's happening. It's happening just as the Bible, just as the Bible says. So you don't get all freaked out. And uh, so I think that's part of the blessing. But here he says, therefore comfort one another with these words. So this teaching of the end times of the rapture is supposed to be something that's given as a comfort. So let me ask you a, a couple of questions. If, if I were to come to you today and say, the Bible talks about the rapture, this taking up, and the Bible also talks about this time period called the tribulation. Doom, death, destruction, war, famine, beheadings, on and on and on. And uh, if we were to say the rapture takes place at the end of the tribulation period, doom, death, destruction, war, famine, and all that, you have seven years that you know that you have to go through all of that, but the good news is at the end, if you survive that, you're going to be raptured to be with the Lord. Is anybody comforted by that? That's where you say no. So what if we said, so halfway through, only three and a half years, 
doom, death, destruction, beheadings, war, famine, on and on and on, uh, you know, persecution and all these things. Three and a half years of that, but then you get raptured. Uh, anybody comforted by that? I mean, it's better than seven years. Wouldn't you agree? It's better than seven. But, but it's still not much of a comfort, much of a comfort. But as we went through things he has seen, things which are after these things, door open in heaven, come up here, and then wrath comes down. If I come to you and say, this is going to take place on the earth, but before that happens, he is coming for his church to remove us, to meet him in the air, and we will be with him, and we will miss those things. Is that comforting? Absolutely. That's why it was given to be a comfort. So there on your outline, go ahead and write this. The teaching of the end times and the rapture is given to be a comfort. Well, Jesus is going to go on in Matthew 24, and he's going to say, for this reason, you also must be ready, verse 44, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. We will know the generation, but we won't know the day or the hour. We'll know the day or the hour. I, I, I think uh, this was given in part to be a comfort and to tell us from the last generation, think, things of that nature. But the idea is that if the things that we've studied over the course of the last couple of weeks are true, we are very close. And I think that's important. I think it's important for this reason. Some of us are going through a very difficult time. Uh, we're struggling with things that we never thought that we would struggle with. We're, we're wondering, how is this going to work out? If you knew Jesus was coming back next week, would that change your perspective on the things that you're facing right now? Absolutely. He's given this as a comfort, and he's told us, look for these things. These things tell us it's very, very soon. And for me, and some of the things that I face, challenges and all of that, it's very comforting to know that it doesn't last forever. Very soon, there's going to be a change. You want to make sure that you're ready. The way that you are ready is that you have accepted the free gift that God has provided for us. Jesus, who is God, came to the earth and he died for everything that you and I have ever done. He looked on us before we were born, before even man sinned. He had a plan. He looked on at man that he had loved and he said, I can't bear for you to pay the price for all the things that you've done. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. So he said, I'm going to come to the earth as a man. I'm going to step into your place and I'm going to pay the price so that you don't have to. So that I can look at you and I can say, you are forgiven, you're free to go. The Bible calls that being born again where we literally become his children. The Bible tells us it's a whole new existence. As we close in prayer, is it raining now? So you don't have nowhere to go. I can go on for another half hour. I won't because Father's Day. Speaking of Father's Day, God wants to have the same relationship with you that you want your children to have with you. See, there would be nothing more heartbreaking for me as a dad than 
for me to do everything that I can possibly do to provide and to love my children and them to turn to me and say, whatever, no big deal. I don't need it. Leave me alone. Parents, would you say that's about as heartbreaking as it gets? I mean, we don't get it right all the time, but we do love our children. So God uses that same metaphor as our father and says, I want that relationship with you. But here's the thing. He doesn't force it. He doesn't force it. So he invites us into that relationship and we have to receive that. If you want that relationship today, as we close in prayer, it's just very simple. It's just saying, Jesus, I want that. Forgive me of my sins. Step into my life. I want to follow you. I want that relationship. And if you open up your life, your heart that way, he steps in and he promises to never leave. He wants that for you. So I'm going to pray, and if that's you, you go ahead and invite him in. After the service, let me also say, there'll be some prayer partners standing by. They would love to pray with you as you solidify that decision. Let's pray. Jesus, as we wrap this up today, we're thankful for the fathers who are here today. Lord, you know, as dads, we don't always get it right. And yet our heart is still for our children. We love our children. And Lord, if any of our kids were to ever look at us and just say, I don't, I don't want a relationship with you, that would be absolutely devastating to us. And so right now, for those of us who've never come to you and said, I want that relationship, you've given the invitation we look to you and say, Jesus, I want that. I pray that you come into my life. Forgive me of everything I've ever done. I I accept your free gift. I want to follow you. And I'm trusting your promise that says that you'll come into my life and you'll never leave. And Father, I pray for each one who's made that prayer today that you would begin your work growing us helping us become everything that you want us to be. Father, I pray that you keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.